This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, teenage pregnancy, grooming and emotional manipulation of a minor by an adult, and allusions to mind control and psychic coercion. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 297. Greetings, listeners. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. This is the show where I share my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 38 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Daniel sat down for an uncomfortable conversation with the summer cell. He admitted that he had once thought of trying to convince Rebecca to leave the cell and run away with him, so their suspicion toward him was justified. But now he realizes that she's never going to leave their family, and he doesn't want her to. Rebecca, though, is firm about wanting to rekindle her relationship with Daniel, too, even though she still loves Brian, Fiona, and Sasha. Later, Daniel talked one-on-one with Brian about what these conflicting priorities could mean for the cell. Brian and the others are willing to let Daniel join them on a probationary basis to see whether he can be successfully integrated into their family, but there are three conditions Daniel has to meet. First, Daniel needs to sort out the conflict between himself and his alter ego, Danny. Since one requirement for women in breeding cells is to bear children with the cell's husband, they need to make sure that Danny is on board with that idea. Since Danny has been pretty exclusively devoted to Jared, the odds on that aren't looking good. Daniel agreed to this, since if he can't figure things out with Danny, he's going to have much bigger problems anyway. Second, Daniel needs to be open with the other members of the cell. They can sense that he's hiding things from them, and that he's carrying a lot of shame and guilt about something. They're willing to give Daniel time to sort through whatever it is, but he has to commit to the process. This could also be a big problem for Daniel, since one of the secrets he's been keeping was his involvement in the vampire smuggling run at the Skyport. That mission led directly to the deaths of two of their closest friends, Dell and Trace, and Daniel doesn't know how he could ever be honest about that. Daniel still said yes, though, intending to put that question on the back burner for now. The cell's third requirement might be the hardest. Daniel and Rebecca aren't allowed to have sex with each other until Brian, Fiona, and Sasha are okay with it. 
They need Daniel to prove that he really is committed to being part of this family, with everything that entails. Still, Brian promised that they wouldn't make Daniel and Rebecca wait forever. It's just a matter of building trust over time. Daniel agreed to the cell's conditions, and thanked Brian for giving it to him straight. Now, he's headed off to the Spells for You magic shop with Sasha and Rebecca. Daniel's only got about two hours before he runs up against the 12-hour limit on time spent in his male form. After that, Danny will take control, and they need to have a plan in place to keep her from running straight back to Jared. Hopefully the wizard Artax will know what to do. But first, we return to Abby Preston, the teenage telepathic prodigy whom Victor has spirited away from the Psy Collective. Abby has adored Victor for years as the man who rescued her after the sudden deaths of her parents. When he paid off Abby's debts to the Collective, she was overjoyed about the prospect of running off and starting a family with him. In a goodbye letter to her best friend, Lysa, Abby described Victor as her brave knight, coming to take her away to a new life. But Abby is about to learn that real life isn't much like her fairy tales. Making the Cut A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 38 Abby Preston sat hunched over the small, battered kitchen table, trying to focus on the textbook in front of her. She'd been at it for hours, and she'd barely gotten through five pages. She looked at the stack of loose-leaf paper she used for note-taking, and was dismayed to find that she hadn't even filled a page yet. History wasn't her favorite subject, but she normally did better than this. She looked out the apartment's tiny window and sighed. There was nothing outside it but gray walls, traffic below, and the undersides of skyways above. She'd been spoiled living in Westfall, where they'd had gardens and open sky, and you could see the mountains on both sides of the valley. This was the view that most people in Metamore saw, a world of concrete and steel hemming you in on all sides. Even when you were outside, you were still living in a box. She pushed back the book and put her head in her hands. It wasn't that she didn't understand the importance of studying— She knew that she had to pass the Empire's standardized tests in order to stay in the home-based education program. If she couldn't prove that she was learning on her own, they'd make her go to a public school with the Mundys, and Victor was sure the elders were watching for her to show up there. She knew what was at stake, and up till now she had never had a problem with teaching herself. Today, though, she couldn't focus on the lesson. Her eyes kept wandering back to the far corner of the table, where a little plastic wand sat atop a pile of tissues. She looked around the tiny one-bedroom apartment, at the cheap and faded carpets, the peeling wallpaper, the notched and chipped wooden cabinets. She looked at the roach trap in the corner of the room, and the walls that were so thin that Abby would have known all about her neighbors even if she weren't a telepath. Nothing was different from yesterday, 
but everything had changed. She heard footsteps in the hallway, and instinctively her mind reached out to scan whoever was coming this way. She got only a jumble of mental static, incoherent fragments of thoughts and feelings. There was only one man whose mind sounded like that to her. She pulled the book in front of her again, and hid the plastic wand in her lap. Victor opened the door of the flat a moment later, smiling and humming contentedly. He carried two shopping bags and a telekinetic grip beside him. As he waved a hand and set them on the counter, he locked the door with his free hand, and then came over to Abby. "'Hey there, sweetheart,' he said, kissing her on the forehead. "'How's school going?' "'Okay,' she said. "'Not great, but okay.' "'Well, not to worry. I brought some fresh fish from the market to feed that brilliant little brain of yours.' How do you want it, broiled or fried? Oh, I I don't know. Either one sounds good. Victor waved his fingers and began unloading the bags, the groceries setting themselves out on the table as though they were tied to invisible strings. The drawer under the oven slid open, and a pan floated up to land on the stove. I think we'll do fried, Victor said thoughtfully. I haven't had fish and chips in a long while. He chuckled then, at some unspoken thought that Abby couldn't read. What? What's funny? Oh, nothing much, Victor said, patting her head. Abby hated that, but she hid her feelings down where he couldn't hear them. Instead, she imagined that she was happy, and put that up near the surface of her thoughts. It was a lot like Drama Club, only harder. Victor didn't seem to notice the difference. I was just thinking of my old buddy Egan. Fish and chips were his favorite. Oh. Abby thought carefully for a moment, then asked, Is that where you went last night? To see Mr. Egan? Victor seemed surprised by the question. Hmm? Oh, no, no, Abby, he said, chuckling. Egan is dead, I'm afraid. No, I got a message from one of my contacts, and I had to follow up on it right away. You know how the work is. Abby nodded. How did he die? Victor's smile faded. The elders sent him on a suicide mission, he said gravely. He should have known better than to take it, but Egan always had more loyalty than sense. That's what loyalty to the elders gets you, Abby. Hard work and an early grave. Yes, sir. Victor cocked his head and looked at her his brow creasing. "'What's the matter, baby? You look worried.' Abby blushed and lowered her head. When she looked back up at him, she forced a smile. "'Sorry, I just wasn't sure how to tell you.' She pulled the plastic wand from her lap and held it up. "'I'm pregnant.' For a moment, Victor stared at the wand. Then his face split into a huge grin. That, he said, picking her up and kissing her, is wonderful news. He laughed, spinning her in a circle. His joy rose to the surface, rising through the mental static that always surrounded him these days, and for a moment he was once again the man she'd fallen in love with. She laughed with him and wrapped her arms around his neck. He wrapped his strong arms around her, and she felt safe. 
At last he set her down, still beaming. You've made my day, little one. Now go start packing while I make us some lunch. Abby frowned. Packing? Why? She didn't particularly like where they were living now, but they'd already moved twice since they left Westfall, and every time the neighborhoods got worse. My contacts said the elders are getting close to figuring out where we live. He said it casually, as if he refused to let it spoil his good mood, but Abby knew it had to be serious for them to move again already. It's for your safety, Abby. I have to make sure nothing happens to you, especially with what you've got inside you now. He put his hands on her shoulders and smiled down at her. Don't worry. Soon I'll find the people chasing us and make them stop. Then we'll have all the time in the world. Then he drew her into another hug. But this time, Abby didn't feel safe. Daniel fidgeted as Artax's mind-scanning device hummed and whirred around him. The old man had added a few new components since the last time Daniel saw it, and none of the additions looked very friendly. The feeling of having a techno-magical construct combing through his brain was still creepy as hell. Was that really necessary? he asked, when the straps released and he was able to remove his head. Again? Artax gave him a chiding look, his bushy eyebrows nodding together over his piercing blue eyes. Proper baseline measurements are always important, Master Shirabi, as you should well know. You've been through substantial changes since last we met, not the least of them being that your soul has split in two. Daniel shivered. I wish someone had told me about that. Well, we hardly expected the results to be as dramatic as they were. Something odd has happened to you, boy, even by the standards of magic. Perversely, Artax smiled. I'm actually looking forward to working on your case. It's been a long time since I've put me hand in a completely new field of research. Rebecca stared at the wizard, sputtering. How can you say that? What Jared did to Daniel, it's... it's wrong. Evil. I know he didn't mean it, but... She waved her hands in the air, incoherently. And you're acting like it's some kind of... of class project. She pointed at Daniel. Doesn't this scare you? Scare me? Artax barked, stepping up to look Rebecca in the eyes. My dear girl, of course it scares me. The whole notion of a soul shaper is bloody terrifying. I've half a mind to call down a meteor on Master Tamlin's head and be done with it. Rebecca backed away, flinching at the old man's sudden intensity. Artax seemed to notice the fear in her eyes and immediately lowered his voice. All the more reason to learn all we can from Daniel and Danny, he said, turning back to Daniel. I'm afraid I've yet to find a cure for your alter ego's conditioning. It may be that it will reverse itself given time. Of course, that means that we must do everything in our power to keep Danny away from Jared. Sasha gave him a worried look. You'd better plan on taking some time off work, Dee. You know Jared's going to come looking for Danny. Daniel sighed heavily. I have some sick time coming. Brainwashing is a sickness, right? He rubbed at the bridge of his nose, 
trying to dispel the twinges of a headache that he'd gotten from Artax's scanner. I guess I should put in for a transfer to another lab while I'm at it. Sasha put a comforting hand on his arm. We've got an opening for a medtech at Eastside General. I'll put in a recommendation for you. Daniel gave her a small but grateful smile. Thanks, Sasha. It would be nice to be somewhere I actually knew somebody. The smile faded rapidly as another thought struck him. Oh, gods, but if I'm at work as me for ten hours a day, what are we going to do about Danny? As soon as she comes out, she's going to go straight for Jared. You really are going to have to keep me tied up at night. Artax scoffed. (laughs) Much as the image of Danny tied to a bed has a certain appeal, I have a better solution. He beckoned them out of his office and into the warehouse beyond. Come with me. He led them to a stretch of plain gray wall along the back of the warehouse, completely indistinguishable from the walls on either side of it. Indistinguishable to Daniel, at any rate. Rebecca's eyes widened and began to glow yellow as Artax approached the wall and put his hand up to its surface. "'Secret passage?' she whispered excitedly. Sure enough, a hairline seam appeared in the surface of the wall— then swung slowly inward to reveal a long, dimly lit hallway. The hidden door and its frame were both at least two decimeters thick. Artax gestured for them to enter ahead of him. Tentatively, Daniel stepped into the gloom. The hallway beyond had three doors along its right side, and a smooth gray metal wall along its left. At the end of the hall was an open doorway to a small room, which glowed a soft blue with the light from what Daniel guessed were computer monitors. Artax swung the door shut behind them, bolting it into place with a heavy, wheel-shaped handle. Sasha stiffened as soon as the door closed. I can't hear anything, she said, her eyes wide. She looked over at Artax. Lead in the walls? Artax nodded. And cold-forged iron? and a smidgen of mithril. Welcome to the sanctuary, my dear. Daniel went up to the nearest door and pushed it open. It looked like steel, but it was far too heavy for its thickness. More lead, he supposed. Inside, he found a comfortably-sized hotel suite, complete with its own restroom, television, closet, cupboards, and writing desk, even a tiny refrigerator and a minibar. An old-fashioned corded phone sat on the nightstand. Everything looked clean and comfortable, even the bed, which he found was softer than most hotel-issue mattresses. It all would have been very comforting, except for two things. The cameras mounted to the ceilings, and the heavy locks that bolted shut from the outside. Sasha and Rebecca followed Daniel inside, though Sasha lingered near the door and kept a wary eye on the wizard. Artax joined her in the doorway a moment later. Not everyone who learns magic is able to control their power responsibly, he said, his voice grave and almost sad. The sanctuary was built as a safe haven for young mages who have lost themselves, and sometimes for their victims as well. Mind control is the most seductive of the magical arts and both the abused and the abusers often need treatment in places like this before they can be returned to society. 
Not at the same time, I hope, Sasha muttered. Artax chuckled. <laughs> Not when it can be avoided, no. He turned to Daniel. Danny will be safe here until we can determine whether her conditioning is permanent. And, if so, how to cure her. We can monitor her through the closed-circuit TV cameras and speak to her through the desk phone. No form of scrying or clairvoyance will reveal her location. As far as Jared is concerned, she will simply disappear. Daniel sat down on the edge of the bed. Which means I have to disappear, too. At least for a while. I mean, if Jared can't find Danny, he might come looking for me next. It would be best for you to stay here full time for a while, Artax said. We don't know the range of Jared's influence, so if we want to give Danny's conditioning a chance to reverse itself, complete isolation is the best option. Plan to stay here at least a few days, until we see whether she's responding to treatment. Rebecca sat next to him and took his hand in hers. Don't worry, Dee. We're not going to leave you alone here. Anything you need, just let me know and I'll bring it by the first chance I get, Sasha promised. Thank you all, Daniel said. He frowned, an unpleasant thought rising in his mind. Artax, sir, what is all this going to cost? I don't have a lot of money. Not any more, anyway. Artax raised an eyebrow in Sasha's direction. I thought you said you could pay me well for my help, Miss King. And we did, before, Sasha said. She fidgeted uncomfortably. But I'm not sure if even we can afford the bills for magic rehab. Artax smiled beneficently. Not to worry, dear. Most of the patients who come to the sanctuary are similarly short of funds. In such circumstances... I have found that the best solution is to resort to the classics. The three teeps gave him a wary look. Your immortal soul? Sasha guessed, dubiously. Your firstborn child? asked Daniel. Seven years, seven secrets, and an old man's dying breath? Daniel and Sasha turned to stare at Rebecca. She shrugged, grinning sheepishly. My bedtime stories had a lot of fairies in them, she said. Artax laughed. Ha! <laughs> Nothing so dramatic, children. Let us say that you shall owe me three favors, to be redeemed at a time and place of my choosing. If you, or any member of your little family, has it in their power to fulfill what I ask of you, it shall be done. Quickly, expediently, and with a minimum of whining. Sasha crossed her arms, giving him an appraising look. It can't be anything that endangers our children. Artax raised his hands innocently. I wouldn't dream of it. And no sex, either. The old man snorted. Do I look like a fool? Well, you are wearing a pointy hat and fuzzy slippers, Rebecca said. Artax glared at her for a moment, then turned back to Daniel. Do I have your word, Master Shrabby? Daniel sighed, but he nodded. You have my word. Miss Brower? Miss King? You have my word, too, said Rebecca. And mine, Sasha added. Daniel felt an odd sensation then, like a gentle tingling on the back of his neck. He swallowed back the lump in his throat. He'd always wondered what a geish felt like. 
promises had power, especially when they were given willingly to a man like Artax. The old man clapped his hands together and smiled at them all, looking like a cat who'd just swallowed a particularly tasty canary. Very well, then. Now that that's out of the way, I suggest that we leave here and let Danny come out to play. Daniel felt Rebecca straighten up in alarm. What? Already? But Daniel just got here. Shouldn't you be, I don't know, doing treatments or cooking potions or something? There is nothing more to be learned until we have a baseline of Danny's behavior when she is isolated from Jared, Artax said firmly. The longer we wait, the more time we waste, and the more shifting stress Daniel will accumulate. He's already past the twelve-hour recommended limit. The longer he waits to relinquish control to Danny, the harder his mind will snap back into her control. It's time to put your feelings on hold and do what's best for Daniel. Rebecca looked away and blushed, saying nothing. It's all right, Bex. Daniel said, squeezing her hand. In another twelve hours or so, I'll be able to come out again. It's not that bad. If she lets you come out again, Rebecca said bitterly, there's no limit on how long she can stick around. She looked up at him, eyes welling up with tears. I just got you back. I don't want to lose you again. It's not fair. Daniel took her in his arms and rested his forehead against hers. He closed his eyes, and two tears ran down his face. I have to do this, he whispered. You know that. She choked back a sob and nodded. He drew back and gently brushed the tears from her cheeks. Be strong for me. Be strong like you were when you came in and rescued me. I know you can do it. He smiled through his tears. You were more gutsy and stubborn than we ever gave you credit for. She laughed at that, in spite of her tears. Yeah, I guess I kind of surprised myself, she admitted. He took her hands and folded them inside his, pressing them over his heart. I need you to be that woman for me. The woman who would walk through fire to pull me out of that place I was trapped in. As long as I know I have that Rebecca on my side, I'll never give up. Danny won't be able to lock me up again. Not as long as I know you're waiting for me on the outside. Rebecca looked into his eyes for a long moment. Then she set her jaw and nodded, her expression brave and determined. I can do that, she said. Daniel smiled and raised her clenched fists to his lips, kissing them. That's what I needed to hear. Sasha put a gentle hand on Rebecca's shoulder. Come on, Bex. Artax says we can watch from the room down the hall. Rebecca and Daniel rose to their feet, embracing one last time. Then Rebecca took Sasha's arm and let her lead her out of the room. Outside the doorway, Rebecca looked back at Daniel and stretched out to him with her mind, sending him waves of love and devotion and a wordless promise to remain strong. Daniel responded in turn, putting on a brave face and sending her as much encouragement as he could muster. Then the door swung shut, the bolts slid into place, and their mental bond fell silent. 
And that's the end of Chapter 38. Come back next week when Danny takes control of her body again. And boy, does she have opinions about what Artax and the Summer Cell have done to her. Larry Levis said, The moment of writing is not an escape. It is only an insistence through the imagination upon human ecstasy, and a reminder that such ecstasy remains as much a birthright in this world as misery remains a condition of it. So step into the ecstasy with me, because it's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of August 7th through August 13th. As I mentioned in last week's episode, my primary focus right now is on completing the audiobook for Making the Cut. I made good progress toward that goal, editing and uploading four completed chapters that I recorded over the last two weeks. I also recorded a fifth chapter this Thursday, which I'll edit next week. On Friday, August 13th, Mel and I drove out to Michigan to spend a week with my family. That will give me some time to work on editing the intro and outro segments for these chapters, turning them into completed podcast episodes. I won't be able to do any more recording while I'm there, of course, but I think the audio I've backlogged will be enough to keep me busy when I'm not hanging out with parents and grandparents. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.